Fantasy-animation.org is a website with a difference. It is not-for-profit and it's run entirely by academics and professional animators. And this means that whether you are reading our latest blog or accessing our latest podcast, thanks for downloading by the way, you can be sure that you are getting the most up-to-date and informed commentary on the colliding worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Whether you are a budding animator yourself, a student of fantasy or animation, or just someone who wants to learn more about the history and theory behind these overlapping media, mediums and genres, why not find out more at fantasy-animation.org or subscribe to our various social media threads on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Reddit, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research. While you're at it, subscribe to the podcast, give us a star rating and better yet, a quick written review as well. It all helps to make the visibility of our project even stronger and attract more like-minded people like yourself to our growing network of fans. For now, do enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, uh, Chris, definitely do feed me after midnight holiday. And Alex, Chris just stole my own joke, Sergeant. <laughs> um, in, so, thank you, yes, good. Um, in true Fantasy Animation fashion, this is one of our quasi-festive episodes recorded months earlier in the year, though not as early as we have done it in the past, uh, where this episode we're taking on uh, the children's horror um, Gremlins, directed by Joe Dante. Now, initially, I thought I was going to struggle in terms of animation, but I think there's a lot to say uh, around definitions of animation, particularly in relation to to puppetry, and actually particularly in relation to Alex's own work on Jim Henson, and whether the liveness of puppetry uh, includes or excludes it from frame-by-frame understandings of the medium. And I also really want to talk about Snow White, which will become clear as the as the episode proceeds. Um, Alex, I've already set you up a little bit, but what else is there to say about such animatronic and puppeted creatures when it comes to fantasy? Oh, God, I don't know. Monsters, beasts, uh, the imaginative object of play. Um, there's loads of stuff to potentially talk about in terms of gremlins as a fantasy as well as gremlins as creatures of fantasy. Uh, but I've got to be honest, I feel like me and you are having a stab in the dark here. Both of us hadn't seen the movie 24 hours ago. This is yep. a public name and shaming of our lack of knowledge of all things gremlins. I think we need someone to help us out, Chris. We, we do. So if, if, if me and you are newbies to the, to the film, I think our guest is definitely not. Um, uh, we're joined by Dr. Catherine Lester, who is a lecturer in film and television in the Department of Film and Creative Writing at the University of Birmingham. Now, her work largely focuses on the intersections between children's culture and the horror genre, which um, obviously I think leads to occasional forays, if that's fair, into animation. Her first book, Horror Films for Children, Fear and Pleasure in American Cinema, is literally hot off the press, coming out only a matter of weeks ago. Uh, and she's also published two on, on popular animation, as well as other areas related to children's horror. She's also currently putting together uh, an edited collection on the animated film Watership Down. While previously, she's also written for, for us, for Fantasy Animation, uh, reviewing Frozen 2, but also interrogating the subversive horror of fantasy animation, uh, looking at, amongst other things, Coraline. Um, so, Catherine, thank you very much for coming on the episode of the Fantasy Animation podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. 
Uh, well, you are very much the expert here, I think, when it comes to a, to a film like Gremlins. So um, just as to kind of kick things off, where does the film, so this is 1984, this is Joe Dante, where does this film fit into your research, particularly in relation to that? What I know you've talked about a lot is that sort of fuzzy category of children's horror that, that is kind of so central to your research. Well, Gremlins was kind of where everything started for me. Um, when I very first got interested in children's horror... I knew straight away, I have to get Gremlins into this somehow. Um, so when uh, the book is based on my PhD thesis, so when I started my PhD, Gremlins was the first case study that I started writing up for no other reason really than I just really, really liked Gremlins. Um, and I would do whatever it took to, uh, I guess, come, <laughs> up, come up with a definition of children's horror that would allow me to talk about Gremlins. Because I think maybe we'll get into this it 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 doesn't necessarily seem in some ways to be a children's film um for example it's rated a 15 in the uk but is it it is yeah wow but wow. um but certainly within its national context in north america it is rated a pg and it was very contentiously rated a pg so in many ways it for me is the sort of starting point both of my interest in children's horror but also of children's horror as a category in american cinema so it's not the first ever children's horror film that would be silly it came out in 1984 <laughs> but because partly because of the fact that it was rated pg and so um it had this there was a kind of backlash to it um because people felt that it was too violent for the PG rating. Uh, as a result, um, a new category was added to the American rating system of PG-13. So it was, Gremlins is partly responsible for that major watershed moment in American cinema. The other film that was responsible for this was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was also notoriously a very violent film rated PG. And then, so so then that kind of had almost like a snowball effect um, in that PG-13 then opened up um, a bit more space for films in that fuzzy category, which were maybe a bit too scary to be PG rated, but not quite scary enough to be R rated, which is like the equivalent of our 15. So historically, it's really interesting. Um, I also think that the gremlin creatures themselves are these wonderful, subversive, interesting representations of children. Um, <laughs> and um, I don't know if, if I should get into this now or maybe wait later or something, but my, my sort of big take on gremlins is that the gremlins themselves are these subversive figures of identification that they are these analogues for children um and that in itself is a really interesting turning point for me in um children's horror cinema because before then and still indeed at the moment children in adult horror films tend to get represented either as these very straightforward victims who need to be saved or they're these demonic villains that we see in something like the omen and and stuff like that um so in children's horror films gremlins included children or child substitutes get to be more complex more interesting 
Um, and Gremlins, again, it's this turning point where you see these child substitute characters who are acting up and basically, um, in my reading, uh, disrupting the this dominant culture where children don't really get to be childish. <laughs> and the Gremlins come in and they basically... Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> they fuck everything up. <laughs> and it's great. So you said the word subversive in your answer there, and I think we're, I think that's going to be one of the kind of buzzwords of, of the podcast. We're recording this in, with the intention of it being a, a Christmas episode, so people could perhaps play a Christmas drinking along game anytime we say the word subversive or anarchic or madcap or all these words that we want to throw at the yeah, kind of energy. Carnivalesque, yeah. Oh, yeah. Double shot if we mention Bactine. Oh, it's going to get great. Um, but... Um, Perhaps before we start, I can see Chris with his head in his hands, listeners. Um, is one of the reasons that these films can start to acquire a subversive energy just kind of by their genre status or their tone or their sensibility is that I'm reminded of an article I've re- not read in years, but a mark- an article by the, the Five Live critic uh, Mark Kermode about kind of um, horror cinema. I think it's called Horror Cinema on the Edge of Taste. And he sort of argues that horror will always have an have a kind of butting relationship with censorship laws because by the very nature of horror it, it, it's it's one of its impulses is to is to engage with limits and the the difference between the on the on uh the you know obscene and the on stage and the, and and that kind of stuff and you can have that battleground at the 18 level with like you know the kind of i don't know a boring but an obvious example would be something like Human Centipede, right? Which is really kind of trying to confront the the viewer with the the limits of taste. But you could also do it at the level of of what's acceptable for both a rating category like PG thirteen or twelve A in this country, and what's acceptable for children, right? And and it's almost like by lowering the stakes of of or lowering the age bracket, you can have an equally subversive battle. But perhaps not going to the lengths of the of the of the sort of upper um, echelons of the, of the age limits or the upper echelons of the, of the censorship law. So you can almost have the battle on two fronts. You can have the battle of what's the limits of all horror filmmaking, but then what's the limits of what will show our our children and what that might mean. Exactly. Yeah, and and that's why I think that children's horror as a category is just inherently subversive, even when it's concerning films that are not especially scary um like i mentioned the hotel transylvania films for example just the idea of a category of film that's children's horror because of the idea that that children and horror don't go together and when they do bad things happen that makes the genre itself just inherently yeah subversive yeah. i feel like we've just used that yeah. word so many times already so, now so people must be wasted absolutely to we're, this. We're happy holidays everybody um but it also links to this kind of you know to talk about sort of my own genre of fantasy it relates to this sort of romantic notion of the child as this kind of vessel for the imagination right and and you know in fantasy literature children often appear because they're seen as having some sort of access to the imaginative world in a way that we lose at adulthood but with that and that's seen as a positive thing because it means they can, you know, dance with unicorns and, and ha- go on flights with fairies and all that kind of stuff. But but the, the flip side of that is that, that there's this perception that because they're so imaginatively sensitive, that, that horror can affect them in ways that they're not protected against, uh, which obviously the evidence is not necessarily there for. But, um, but th- I guess it's, it's kind of, it's, it's subversive in its relationship to fantasy and that fantasy is its kind of cuddly... Um, 
acceptable, uh, you know, what, what, what we want, what we think and want kids to be doing with their imagination. But often what kids are actually doing with their imagination is imagining monsters in their cupboard uh, and gremlins around the corner. So, so it's subversive in that level and it presents and it sounds like a lot of what your work is dealing with it is that representation, but it represents childhood in a way we're not that comfortable thinking about because we like the idea of childhood being innocent uh, and, yeah. and pure, but but they are none of these things. Um. Yeah, we like the idea that, that a child is like Gizmo, the mob yes. guy, cute and fluffy and easy to control because he's very like compliant, doesn't like breaking rules, whereas the gremlins are representative in in my reading of what happens what adult society fears will happen when a child accesses horror which is that they will turn into the, these monstrous beasts and um they will break all the rules they may even kill people or they might just do really fun things that children like to do like break into a bar and go wild break into the cinema and eat all the candy um attack santa claus i don't know like <laughs> But that's part of the pleasure, isn't it, to sort of lean into the messiness of this. Uh, that's that's this thing. Going, yeah, going back to the application of these kinds of categories is that yes, we can resist the way that they are used, or the way that they're applied to certain films, um, or the way that films are sold, and where where we find books in the library about those films. But it is really interesting to sort of lean into that chaotic messiness, and and it is interesting that, as you say, certain certain films aren't badged in the in the same way. And and um, Alex, you're looking quizzical at me oh. as if we need to start actually talking about That's Gremlins. You, you probably up on the look perfectly there, Chris. Yeah, let's talk about Gremlins. So, um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to have much in the way of robust discourse to contribute to this, other than that the Gremlins look kind of cool. But if I do have anything to offer to this, and I would, I would like us all to complicate it, is that um, I think the two things that struck me about Gremlins when watching it was that I wasn't expecting to be struck by was one um, how uh, cine literate it was and how much it looked almost nostalgically back to genres yep. of 1940s 1950s Hollywood uh, and two uh, how uh, contemporary it was at the same time in how 1980s uh, the film is grounded in so um, to start us off I'd like to talk about the opening uh, the opening kind of coda where we're introduced to uh, the gremlin, uh, Mogwai, uh, the Mogwai. So, are the, so has, clear something up for me immediately, Kat. Are these things called gremlins or are they called Mogwai? Um, that's question number one. Um, both? I think okay. both. I mean, the, 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 the little fuzzy cute ones. Yes. See behind me. Yes, there's That's a model. A right, there's a model yeah. of a mogwai in the bottom left of Cat's uh, uh, Zoom photo. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, officially, they're mogwai, uh, but within the film, everyone refers to the things that the mogwai turn into, which are more kind of lizard-like, as gremlins. Mm. So I think for differentiation purposes, it's mogwai when they're cute and fluffy, and gremlins when they're not. Great. Okay, so we're introduced to a mogwai, which are our protagonist's father is the first character we meet, uh, Randall, who's an inventor. And we kind of get a kind of weird film noir-esque voiceover yep. intro that kind of starts yep. this tale off as if it's double indemnity. Um, yep. We get we introduced to these creatures and we find our character in a, in a, in a antique store in Chinatown. And there's this whole weird yellow peril anti- 
Chinese anti-East Asian sentiment going on that's reflected throughout the whole thing, which seems to be that one of the things that we should be suspicious of straight away about these Mogwai is that they come from distant shores and that they are um, they are not to be trusted as a result. So, first off, very weird that this is a film noir movie. I've got written in my notes. Second off, yellow fever movie, anti-Asian sentiment, era of Fu Manchu, question mark. So there we go. Very weird 1940s riffing, but also very much rooted in 1980s um, fear and anxiety. Um, anyone else want to add to that? Yeah. I, I don't think I'd ever thought of it as film noir before, but I think because of the voiceover, you're correct. I don't although I don't know if I have anything more to say about that. And yeah, I think, although in my book I talk about the film as children's horror and about the, the gremlins as these substitute children, we absolutely have to acknowledge it's like extremely Orientalist and, and racist in the way it's representing Asian culture here. And I think other people smarter than me have written in more detail about that aspect. The only, I suppose, the only thing to add, to add I was thinking about um, Hoover and Roger Rabbit and and the use of noir in that sense. But actually, I, I was sort of, I, it did strike me as very noir. I didn't know what to expect, as as you said, I hadn't watched it before. And 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 the opening with the voiceover, coupled with the citations of, of sort of popular Hollywood cinema across different genres. There's a, I mean. It, of course, the film looks like Back to the Future because it is Back to the Future. It is the set of Back to the Future, but it also is is citing Snow White and it's citing It's Wonderful yeah. Life and 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 so. But but uh, the noir citation was interesting simply because of of Hollywood at the time and the turn towards neo noir and Chinatown and 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 that sort of mid mid nineteen seventies noir gets to a point where it turns back on itself and again actually there's a fuzziness between when does noir end, noir end and when does neo-noir begin and the sort of uh yeah the the postmodern reflexivity of of noir getting to a point and then starting to look back notwithstanding debates around whether it is it is a genre a mode a zeitgeist and all that sort of stuff so i think actually the citation of noir visually at least or stylistically in relation to the voiceover perhaps does something in relation to an, uh, in, uh, I don't know, an, an imaginary of of fear or masculine masculine fear, I guess, Mascu- masculine anxiety, masculinity is always in crisis, as we know, and this crisis is kind of channeled through the father, who is desperately trying to 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 make him make himself success. You know, he hands out all these cards the whole way through, almost to the point of parody. Um, but you're right, I, I it was sort of film noir meets an orientalist understanding of otherness which didn't necessarily sit or didn't i didn't know what to expect that the rest of the film was going to be based on that opening i think that you said it's almost to the point of parody but i think it absolutely is parodic in its representation of the father and i think that this introduction is quite really interesting and quite crucial to that because his voiceover only appears right at the beginning here and then again right at the end but he's not in the film no. for quite a lot of it so and, and he's not presented as someone who's like got his shit together mm-hmm. he's presented as a really foolish man he um he's a bad inventor not an especially good um father and husband as a result of not being a good inventor because that's his livelihood and he doesn't make any money off of it it's his fault basically that the whole that all of the events of the film get kicked off because he takes this 
this mogwai without the permission of the shop owner, blah, blah, blah. So for me, he's this, he's represented deliberately as this ridiculous figure. And it's, it's almost, it's playing upon this idea of the kind of patriarch, but, and, and the voiceover that bookends the film feeds into that. But I think it's supposed to be like, this guy's an idiot. Look at this guy. He's, caused all these problems and then he comes back sort of serendipitously at the end once everything's resolved as if it's like his his doing but no he's just there by accident yeah yeah to me there's, there are two other things at fault though in that opening sequence there's the ineffectiveness of the father but there's also the fact that the 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 the, the child, the, the sort of kid that sells him the Mogwai is desperate to sell it. So we have the force of sort of commercialism, commerce, um, fueling this this thing happening. And the final thing that's the problem is that this Mogwai is taken from a place that he that that they understand him, that he has a sort of cultural history with. They know how to treat the Mogwai. They know how to look after the Mogwai. And he's sold as a commodity outside of that um, to this American small town family. And there's this recurring, you know, this anti- um, Asian kind of sentiment. Yes, it plays out on a kind of body politic, body fear level right at the beginning where we get these kind of, you know, quote unquote foreign spaces. But actually, the more recurring line in the movie seems to be, you know, oh, it's a foreign piece of crap is what people say quite a lot, right? You know, things are foreign and what's scary about them is they represent this kind of globalised, you know, capitalism of the 1980s, yeah? Toys that are being sold in every country around the world, um, are bad because they no longer represent the communities of which they are made for. So I think in one way, what these these visual references back to the 1940s and 50s are is they're a, a reference back to Bedford Falls. Yeah, It's a Wonderful Life, small town 1940s America where everything is quaint and local and belonging to an individual community. And what the film's setting up kind of tonally in those opening sections is 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 a threatening to that caused by these gremlins but we could see the gremlins as much as representations of kind of yeah of capitalism right or of of of, of yeah free market economy as much as they are of, of children absolutely and i think the second film which we we won't talk about but the second film really leans into that a lot more and leans into the satirical elements um a lot more but okay. you know, maybe we could save that for another podcast sure yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely absolutely so so we haven't met our heroes yet our heroes are uh well who are they um well as far as i'm concerned the heroes are the gremlins um <laughs> but well <laughs> who, who are the heroes as, supposed to be for the first 10 minutes as at least? far as what the film tells us at the beginning um so we have we have the father Randall Peltzer who tells us in his voiceover he's buying a Christmas present for his kid which I also think is really interesting because then we expect Billy to actually be a child and sure. we see him yep. and yep. he's like a grown adult 50 <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think that's also really interesting because he's he's presented as this quite um, ambiguous figure at least in terms of age he is treated as, as a child by by his father at least and he behaves childish in certain ways you know we see him going to work at his at a bank um which is quite a grown-up job i think we will probably agree but he he hides his dog under his desk which gets him in trouble he has a little clip-on tie which reads as quite childish he puts his his nameplate is upside down so he's not a very put together he's not adulting very well for someone who is supposed to be an adult, as far as we can tell. 
Um, yeah, so Billy is presented to us as uh, as our protagonist, Randall's son. And later that day, Billy goes home and he gets given Gizmo, the Mogwai, as his early Christmas present. It's interesting, interesting. So here's the thing I noticed. Why do none of the people in this movie, until these creatures turn into gremlins whilst they're Mogwai find them anything but slightly amusing toys. There's this seems to be what I picked up on a quite a normalizing rhetoric going on, which is that these kind of, you know, these beasts from out of space, these these creatures from the beyond, these, you know, rather cute looking but essentially extraterrestrial objects appearing in small town America. No one seems to bat an eyelid because they're cute um they you know they look nice and so people kind of just kind of pat them on the head and go oh that's a cute toy and move on with their lives no one seems to be particularly um shocked by the appearance of the gremlin um until it turns into said gremlin um yeah, yeah. and of course what we haven't mentioned so far is that the mogwai comes with three very important rules yes as well which Again, you'd think that those would raise flags. So you're not supposed to expose him to bright light and especially not sunlight as it will kill them. Uh, Don't expose them to water. And as we find out, that's because water makes them multiply. And um, don't feed them after midnight because that is what turns them into the titular gremlins. So I suppose this is where the animation comes in for me because this whole sort of treating them as toys, the um, the, the importance of the materiality of animatronics. Um, as you say, at the very, very beginning, the father goes to get a toy and ends up with essentially a toy. And part of that, I think we're supposed to read them as merchandise. I think we are. This is a film that's got one eye on the post-cinema existence of, of itself. It's sort of, this is what children will buy. We are, we are this close to a Furby. Um, so there's, there's something going on. Mogwai Furbies and in fact the the marketing of the film also very much situated it as being a children's film um there were loads of of gizmo toys and plushies it was advertised like it had a serial tie-in and that kind of stuff so sorry to interrupt no 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 that's that's no, I think the merchandise thing is important because he's essentially buying he's essentially trying to buy something that that may or may not be the latest fad, or he's at least discovered something that he think thinks his child will like, irregardless of the fact is, you know, children in the eighties, if they're not five or six, look about thirty-five, forty. But anyway, um, there is there is something interesting then about what happens when they multiply, and as you said, Alex, that sort of um, ex- the intensification or the acceleration of a particular object as it as it seems to move through quite a hysterical population. And, and it was difficult to not connect that back up to a desire to get the latest to get the latest toy. And actually, that's where I think, yeah, the animatronic or the, the materiality of stop motion. Sorry, the materiality of stop motion. But in this case, the the, the three dimensionality of 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 actual animatronics that characters can hold and they can kind of cradle and put in backpacks and is really important. I think it it lends itself to that to that narrative of of yeah. These objects are somehow collectible, and they will run rife because of because of their popularity within this relatively small small community. Um, and I know that you've written on on puppetry and that, and that even if it, even if we don't consider puppetry a form of animation, because it isn't created frame by frame, it is at the very least part of a set of conversations that surround what animation is. Um, and in this case, I definitely think the the materiality or the three dimensionality of the of the objects as they are being are being held and then they run riot through the world of the film 
is very much tied to their status or hints at their status as these essentially are sentient toys. Um, this is this is yeah this is something that obviously Toy Story will, and animation has always been fascinated with toys come alive. But here we seem to have missed off the bit where they come alive. They are just they are just alive. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And what you end up getting is is before the sort of before they hatch and we get the more horrific elements of, of the of the story. We get we get <laughs> we get a, an equally horrific thing, which is this just like this. We're watching a craze take place here. We're watching the latest craze play out in a small town, in that all these characters yeah. see the Mogwai, um, see Gizmo and his friends, and want one and, and desire one. And 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 as you, as I say, like they don't they don't seem to have any appreciation for the fact these are living things they don't have any appreciation for the strangeness of the object and the fact that perhaps these objects don't belong in a space like this um they they just look cute they serve a commercial function and therefore they are worth um obtaining and there's not much questioning beyond that and in a way uh we talk about rhetorics of fantasy there's almost an ironic rhetoric going on because what you'd expect would be a kind of intrusive oh my god, what's this creature kind of rhetoric? And that doesn't happen until they turn into to gremlins. That the kind of what, what we get is a much more normalised um, world where this all seems to be perfectly fine and no one seems to be batting an eyelid. It's only when, shock yeah. horror, these things actually have lo- a life of their own, desires of their own. Um, and they're not cute anymore. They're not cute anymore. Mm. Yeah, so, so cuteness is a really important factor to this. Talk, talk to us about cuteness in, in this because because they start off designed cute and they become uh, quote unquote not cute. So um, how important is that in terms of aesthetics of children's horror? Uh, very, <laughs> I think probably. Great. Um, Next question. No, no. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> but yeah, I think the part of the reason why I'm like the gremlins are the unfairly maligned victims of this story is because they just hatch they um everyone reacts to the gremlins with hostility purely on the basis of kind of what they look like and the fact that they're they're basically just minding their own business and defending themselves against all of these what i read as unjust attacks because they're not cute anymore and because they're not compliant with this like adult gaze anymore yeah and thought about it like that and and actually it's it's their refusal to kind of be defined by by these adults by by their use value to these adults that make them so um problematic to the society yeah that they, they, they don't work as toys anymore because they don't look cute anymore so there's an immediate hostility towards them and then the threat they pose it's not a kind of you know uh, I mean they keep getting compared to invasion of the body snatchers right that's another 1950s reference that appears uh, and there's this sense that they're going to take over society and consume them all or kill them all or eat them all or some sense of kind of that society is under threat but actually they're, they're quite happy to participate in their own way they want to go to as you said they want to go to the cinema they want to go to the bar um, mm-hmm. they, they want to just they, they want to kind of get on with stuff um, but but it, it's the fact they won't let them that causes the narrative tension. It's not them trying to kind of, um, yeah, they're not trying to win, take over. They're just trying to like have a date night, it would seem. Um. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's important to point out that they do kill some people in the film. Yeah, but but most, it, <laughs> but it's really important. Just Im- it's always it's important, really important to point who that who they kill. 
Because yeah, the, yeah. the probably the most shocking human death that, ha- and maybe the only human death actually that happens in the film, is Mrs. Deagle, mm. who we see at the beginning as this grouchy old woman. Yeah, She's yeah. like a landlord or something who's refused. Uh, extensions on rent to destitute families and she says she's going to kill Billy's dog uh, and there's a Margaret Hamilton Wicked Witch of the West I'm glad you did it because I was about to do it yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely we've got yeah. one part Mr. Potter and one part um, Mrs. Gulch Wicked Witch of the West going on yeah. absolutely yes so she's very clearly established as a, as probably the only true villain in the film and what do the gremlins do? They do everyone else a really big favour <laughs> by launching her out of her window on a stairlift. Is it significant then that the gremlins, as a result, you know, in terms of the acts, their agency, it's significant that Billy isn't a child? Because I think if if he was a young child, the gremlins would. I was expecting the. I was expecting a kind of ET esque. We have a young child and we have a, a a creature who helps. You know, they learn from each other, or or um, the child has something missing in his life, and ultimately it's filled by this this essentially extraterrestrial. But with Billy being slightly older, there is no requirement for the gremlins or even the the Mogwai to fulfil a certain kind of uh, a function. They don't have to. I mean. M- there is there is a, a kind of whiff of that, but actually it seems like their agency is propelled or they're defined not in relation to what they can provide for other people, but they just end up, as you say, acting of their own accord. And if they want to go to the cinema, they'll just go to the cinema. Um, I was a bit shocked by the chainsaw, but but that's that's by the by. But um, I just thought that was really interesting. I was expecting a, 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 a I was expecting a narrative whereby these these um, gremlins are used as as I don't know a kind of surrogate father or a surrogate parent to one of the children i don't necessarily think that's true here and i think it comes from the fact billy isn't a young child i think if anything it's it's the opposite that billy is is framed as the surrogate father to gizmo and especially when he first holds gizmo he's kind of cradling him like a like a baby and so i see billy as almost kind of like a tragic figure in that he as i said before he's not very good at adulting um but his dad comes home and basically gives him a newborn child to look after and he's not ready for that he doesn't have the responsibility or the means to to take care of this thing and so it's that kind of being given too much responsibility too soon that inter by a father who's an irresponsible figure already that that causes that kind of knock-on effect and results in the chaos that we see He's he's not good at adulting in a kind of um, 1980s go get them. You should be working in a city by city bank by now. But he's you know he's, he seems relatively capable. He's you know I think that's more capable than his own dad at least. Absolutely yeah, and and a, one yeah. of the advantages of making him older as opposed to the sort of the younger version of there's another version of this where the child is younger is that he is more capable of sort of being an effective. Um, protagonist against the physical threat of these 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 gremlins and i'm i can't remember the name but there's this there's this rivalry he has with this other 
uh, other Gerald. Gerald, thank you. Gerald who is like he yeah, is. Yeah. He is the yes, epitome yes. of kind of. He is Marty McFly at the end of Back to the Future, as opposed to Marty McFly at the beginning. No, sorry, the George McFly at the end of Back to the Future, as opposed to George McGuy at the beginning of Back to the Future. He's not. He's he's a epitome of 1980s go get 'em success, and he's an absolute. Uh, well, they've already sworn on the podcast, so we'll keep going. He's an absolute knobhead. Like he's 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 not who we're supposed to admire. He's not the kind of adult we're supposed to like, and it all adds to this kind of subversive there we go in case anyone sobered up um energy to the um to the thing in that in that one of the things this thing is taking down is just yeah 80s 80s culture and 80s 80s consumerism I, i loved all that chris it's probably time to talk about gremlins and their animated nature so I think there are two things we could mention here. I, I think we should talk about the, the the cinema scene. So there is a key scene in this mm. in this sequence in this film where the gremlins go to the cinema and watch Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But I think more broadly we could talk about the way the physicality of these creatures once they become aware embodies actually a kind of slapstick Warner Brothers Looney Tune esque kind of anarchic. Uh, you know, quality that, that the film also enjoys. And I'm thinking of particularly of the bar sequence that's one of the sort of standout yep. moments in the film. So I don't know. Over to you, Chris. Gremlins and their animated nature. You've said they're like well, objects, you, but they're also like cartoon yep. characters, aren't they? They are. And actually, the first point, or your, your second point is answered the first point, insofar as I was trying to get my head around why or what the, the Snow White sequence is doing in the film. Because of all the all the things that they could go to the cinema to see... That seems like a very interesting. What in what world is? Have they gone to the Prince Charles or something? What world are they showing in 1984, a 1937 film, just casually? Don't understand it. Um, and I think the answer lies in the division between that and Warner Brothers. And and you know there are plenty of films where animation is is put on television to show something. We've just we just if those of you who've seen the the new Bond film, there is Wallace and Gromit playing on a television that gives us an indication of the time or the the the, the moment that the sequence is set but also isn't it great that kids watch that's what kids watch they watch certain kinds of of animation Uh, and there's a long history of of certainly disney animation being used in this particular way there's a film from um yeah the the 40s uh sullivan's travels which is about a group of prisoners who go end up going to the cinema and end up watching a a really plasmatic silly symphony short and it's supposed to kind of counterpoint their rigid mechanized existence as they all are chained together by seeing that this fluid malleable world on screen so i don't in that sense yes they are going to the cinema to watch snow white because because animation is there i've said it entertaining right but i think actually the the division here or the the reason why it's snow white is to counterpoint a different kind of animated behavior so disney were known for a particular kind yeah kind of uh sentimental modernism um, a hyper-realist aesthetic versus the animated anarchy of the Looney Tunes and Warner Brothers and Merry Melodies and, and Tom and Jerry um, and Roadrunner and all that kind of stuff. And you're absolutely right that the Gremlins embody that side of, of the spectrum. They are they are uh, characters who are whose bodies are a sight. And I think w- at one point one of the scientists talks about metamorphosis, a change of form and appearance. And very kind of famously, unless it was rooted in magic, Disney animation didn't really kind of go in for that after a particular period whereas there is something around cartoon violence and the fragmented ability of bodies to to sort of change and shatter and then in the next scene be absolutely perfect again uh, i think and in fact isn't billy an aspiring comic book writer and i was look or comic book artist and i was looking on online and, and isn't chuck jones his teacher 
um, in the film or something like that. He's credited as his his the comic book artist's teacher is Chuck Jones. And obviously Chuck Jones was known for Looney Tunes and Warner Brothers. So it's definitely trying to stick its flag in the sand. This is a different kind of animated anarchy um, that is far removed from that hyper-realist sentimentality and, and musicality because the sequence that the gremlins watch in the cinema is is the hi-ho sequence it's a musical number and this film isn't doing that so that's the only uh, yeah your second point kind of answered the first or clarified the first to me because i was unsure as to what that citation of snow white was doing but it, it does seem to to try and create a division between different kinds uh, of animated action and violence and and kind of character what for me, I think that the the fact that they're watching Snow White is key to seeing the gremlins as these child substitutes. Um, because And especially because it's not any point of Snow White that they're watching. They're not watching one of the scary bits. Because no. as we've established, Snow White is very scary. They're watching one of the most kind of joyful and happy bits of Snow White, which is the dwarfs singing hi-ho, hi-ho. And at that moment, all of the gremlins stop what they're doing because they've been like tearing apart the cinema and, and causing chaos. They all stop and they're just entranced by the film. They start singing along. And it's what I find especially kind of tragic about what happens to them is that it's at that moment when they are their most childish, when Billy and his friend Kate choose to blow up the cinema at that point when they're just being the most innocent that they could possibly be well no i i i'm just yeah going back to this 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 thing of of the the violence of media and and the child audience i suppose uh criticisms of of yeah video games or or yeah violent video games or rap music as children listen to rap music and they will automatically be violent but if they listen to apparently if 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 they listen to Dido and become apathetic, we don't blame Dido for their apathy, but we can definitely blame rappers for violence. But, um, but that's a separate thing. But I wonder whether the point that the film is making by choosing a particular sequence from Snow White that isn't, as Kat said, particularly scary and is actually quite jovial and it's about um, it's the about end of the work day. It's about work as well, isn't it? So it's, again, yeah. about that shaping them into the good little capitalists that they'll grow up to be or something. Yeah. But it's, I, I suppose it's also saying that their behaviour, the behaviour of the gremlins isn't intrinsically related to what they're, what they're watching on screen. You, you, can't, you can't say that, oh, the reason that they're acting up like this in the cinema is because of the thing that they are watching. And it's almost trying to position... I'm not trying to say that it's apolo- apologising. The animation isn't going to cause this. or that is, is it saying something about itself that it doesn't matter how violent the film is, it's not going to impact or it's not going to it's not going to impact or influence children in the way that you think because children don't necessarily think like adults. And those judgments that we make around media are often aimed at adult subjects rather than thinking through and nuancing a children's response to that. Because it seems like their relationship to what's the Snow White on, on, the, on the screen isn't really... They're kind of not really watching it. and Well, they kind of are in some instances, but then they start to, to sort of destroy the cinema. And I don't know. I'm just wondering whether it's trying to make a comment on on the their the palatability of media the this this role of the, the childlike gremlin as vessel for imagination or I, I don't know is it is it trying to at least say something around the susceptibility of children that isn't really susceptibility at all well there is at least one moment in the film where a child by which i mean gizmo 
copies something that he's seen in a yes. film, which is when yes. earlier in the film we see him watching a racing film starring Clark Gable, which I think is called To Please a Lady. And right. later in the film, in the department store, he takes a little toy car and he uses that and is instrumental in using that to defeat Stripe, the last remaining gremlin. So if anything, yeah. the film is saying that media can be a positive influence on kids. And actually, for the first time on this rewatch, I noticed that when he's watching that film on TV, there's also a Mad Max Road Warrior poster just <laughs> on the other side of the TV, and which I had never noticed before. But he's not, I guess, is he doing Road Warrior? Is he Is he influenced by Road Warrior or is he influenced by the more kind of a uh, soft Clark Gable film. But either way, I think maybe it doesn't matter. He's watched yeah. something and yeah. he's taken that and he's done something that the broader culture would consider good with it. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. It also, it's also worth comparing um, the, the Snow Knight sequence with the, with, the, with the bar sequence that comes after it. And perhaps it's important it's that way round in that it's before the bar sequence is, it? is first. Okay, then the yeah. point I was about to make is redundant, <laughs> but I'll keep trying to make it anyway because that's what I do on this podcast. No, but okay, well, if it's the other way around, then the then the point gets reversed. But it's interesting that in the bar sequence, then it feels like this is like Gremlin Home, right? This is like you're introduced to it. Uh, Phoebe Cates's character is kind of desperately trying to keep these these things at bay, uh, serve them drinks and stuff. They're having the time of their life. They're trashing things. It, it, it looks like they're having enjoyed, but it also just kind of looks like a rowdy bar. Like it looks like, it looks like, you know, and, yeah. and we could, if we wanted to get puritanical about it, and, and I guess, you know, if, if we, we made the reference to It's a Wonderful Life, this many way looks like the alternative Bedford Falls of, of that movie where everything's kind of strip joints and bars and sleazy. Um, and we could argue that, oh, well, this is an indictment on bar culture it's it's saying look at these cd places it's the kind of places gremlins hang out and all this kind of stuff but then a gremlin can also hang out in a cinema and a, and a gremlin can still enjoy snow white so it's 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 almost like it's it's saying you know there's a duality right it's it's not about it's not about that snow white keeps people like mogwai and bars turn people into gremlins they are still gremlins yeah. regardless of the way they're laughing at dwarfs yeah. or drinking beers in a bar uh, they remain what they yeah. are no matter what but also that it's that it's difficult and fuzzy to create a kind of cause and effect chain between something that happens on screen and then the result and action if as you say there is that duality in play where it doesn't it, they're getting influences from all kinds of things um as I said, I don't, I don't necessarily think that the, the film is is openly apologetic in that sense, but it is also saying, look, there is a space for children's horror that isn't going to res result in a in a barroom brawl because if they're going to brawl, they'll brawl anyway, or they'll brawl because they've seen it somewhere else. So I'm just trying to 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 given that spectatorship is a really important dimension of of children's horror and horror generally, you know, horror, horror is a is a is a body genre because it's one of the genres that that make us feel horrific it's it's like pornography it's 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 it's, it's it, there are genres i can't remember who talks about body linda genres williams. Um, linda, linda williams yeah um so there are differences between body genres and and genres that make us feel something else or a western might feel make us feel or react in a slightly different way and less bodily than than something like horror but seemingly because spectatorship is so important and modes of spectatorship are so important, and the child viewer is so important to, to horror. Um, it seems like it seems like 
to, to set a, a sequence in a cinema is making a commentary in some way about the pleasures and the perils of, of spectatorship and media consumption and, and things like that. I guess we're coming short to the end of, 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 our, of our episode. And, and I, I, given that we've talked a lot about the films offering these spaces to think about media's impact upon children, media's impact upon society, the relationship between consumerism and, and cinema. I wondered, Kat, did you have anything you could tell us about the reception of the movie? Because um, obviously the film, I'd like to know what the immediate reception was. I'm aware that there was perhaps a little bit of a tension or controversy. Is that over-egged or is that true of the time? And then what the re- sort of, you know, legacy of the movie has been since? Because... Chris and I hadn't seen it, but everyone else has. So um, talk to us about... In the yeah, world. everyone else in the world has. So talk to us about sort of what happened... Tell us the story of what happens once Gremlin comes out and if there's anything we can learn as, as scholars of, of children's horror because of that um, story. Well, um, when it came out, it was hugely commercially successful. And I think that was mainly on as a result of a very good marketing campaign which almost entirely obscured the fact that it was a horror film and instead made it look more like a sort of E.T. more wholesome film and it really emphasised the fact that it was Spielberg who produced it. So when people saw the film there was um, some controversy around the fact that they'd you know taken like their five-year-olds or whatever expecting E.T. and then they saw gremlins being blown up in microwaves. Um, And as I said, that was enough combined with Temple of Doom to result in then a whole new film rating, which we still have today. Um, In terms of critical reception, there was a fair bit of negative critical reception, actually. And again, I think um, Philippa Antunes goes over the critical reception in more detail in her book. But people were... Um, critics were quite taken aback by the film's quite cynical tone, um, and that it's and, and especially the the way it seemed to be attacking kind of core American ideological values like little small towns and the idea of Christmas itself. Um, but as I said, despite that, it was still very commercially successful. I think. Um, it was released in June, which is bizarre because it's a Christmas <laughs> film. But I do believe that it did have um, a kind of re-release that Christmas. Um, and so it was at least successful enough to warrant that. And I think uh, I'm not really sure much about the specifics of its life after that. But um, I think it it would have gone on to become the kind of film that people saw, you know, they rented on VHS and watched at sleepovers and lots of other children's horror films like The Monster Squad have similar similar narratives where they they reach people through those home media formats more than anything else because you can you can kind of watch things without necessarily your parents knowing about it in that way. And so again, is it all about the way that children's horror or horror in general is all about subversion and breaking rules and doing things you're not supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. Found in the spaces sort of outside where they're supposed to be and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, okay, interesting, interesting. Is there anything else about Gremlins that we must mention um, before we begin to wrap up, Kat, and talk about your book more? Is there any uh, key aspect that we must, um, that we we haven't gone over that would be worth uh, 
listeners being aware of if they want to know more about this movie? This time around, because I was watching it in with the idea of animation in mind, and I was thinking especially about the sort of Looney Tunes-esque references, and Dante mm. himself has said that it was like a roadrunner style quality to the to the animation and i just noticed that there were some looney tunes character toys in the department store which kind of cemented that that link along with like garfield and some smurfs or something but i also thought about randall's inventions as maybe being a bit like acme products (laughs) from looney tunes because they they're all a bit rubbish they don't they don't work yeah. Um, they're also quite. I wondered if was another reference. They're also quite rubbish because they're unnecessary. Like they're 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 solutions to things that don't need solutions for, which I think adds to that kind of um, stuff for stuff's sake kind of sense of the movie. Yeah, and so and as well this time I was thinking about whether because something I talk about in the book is not in relation to Gremlins, but in relation to actually animated films is the extent to which animation mitigates or lessens horror um and i take issue with that because i point to something like Coraline, which is stop motion animated and still terrifying not despite but perhaps because of the fact that it's stop motion animated and i think actually people can just go to my blog post on the fantasy animation website to read my thoughts about that but so this time i was like well does the fact that the gremlins violence is sort of cartoonish does that make it less horrifying? And I think probably no, because it's not it's not like a Looney Tunes in the sense that they are tangible objects. They do get torn apart. They blow up. They have blood that goes everywhere. And I guess I was interested to know what, what you and Chris especially thought about that aspect of the cartoonal violence. Mm. Yeah, um, and I, I, I was gonna. <clears throat> I suppose my my answer is is relation to horror and comedy, actually, because I was thinking, yes, animation always sits on that knife edge between exaggeration or dilution, um, and and as you write in the in the blog, nowhere is this more prevalent than in 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 the horror genre, which does 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 it matter that something's animated? Does that lessen the the horror? Or does it amplify it? In the sense, or in the case of Gremlins, is it that it still makes it horrifying, but it makes 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 the horror funny. Or does it does it does it transform in the way that I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about I suppose the way that genres work at the level of semantics and romantic comedy and and the things that qualify the other things, um, black comedy, that kind of thing. And so I was wondering whether the the animated horror or the children's horror or the the bit that's sort of qualifying the other bit what that does to it how animation transforms the horror and i wonder whether it introduces a level of comedy because i still thought the film was horrifying but i found the horrific moments comedic i mean like there are there are funny bits like when they're dressed as carol singers that is really funny that is because that is them trying to understand they're, they're learning the customs and then trying to like act them out which i thought was really funny and then there are some really horrific bits where one of them is using that that uh, um chainsaw but i found that i found the 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 horror more comedic because it was animation it didn't it didn't lessen the horror but it introduced an element of of comedy that i don't know that i don't know whether that necessarily tempered the horror but it certainly it certainly did something 
to, it certainly did something to it. It's a bit of a roundabout answer, but um, I think the comedy. I thought the comedy element was something that was definitely worth commenting it, on in the, in, it, the, in the film. It's a film that speaks so much through other media examples that it's almost like it's it's yeah. There's a way of viewing that as like it's <clears throat> it's it's subverting. One more time, everybody for the road. Uh, it's subverting. Um, uh, you know that kind of animation physicality of of that Looney Tunes it's making that yeah. horrific because it's kind of applying it to um to a live action setting and and it's applying it to a genre like horror and it's 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 revealing the grotesque within that kind of um aesthetic almost I, the way i read it as all well, there there are some scenes where it's funny because they're acting like that there are some scenes where it's horrific because they're acting like that and chris is quite right there are yeah. some scenes where it's kind of both at the same <clears throat> time and and it's not that I don't think it mitigates the horror. I think it, it it adds to the tapestry of what these gremlins seem to be representing and doing and, and being in, in the space of the movie. Actually, that's really interesting that it sort of places a Looney Tunes aesthetic within within a, a kind of three dimensional fictional world. What would what would happen if if these sorts of cartoon events actually could be mapped onto a you know fictionally real space? Well, yeah. Well. Is, this is this is what happens when a a, a, a gremlin picks but, up a chainsaw. This is how horrific and how fearful the the characters it, are. It's also about revealing. Talk about you know turning a mogwai into a gremlin. Like it, that metaphor we've been using. It's about revealing the violence that's inherent within the the most lovely child friendly of entertainment forms. Right? You know, it, it, it's revealing that actually, if you sit and watch this cartoon stuff. It, a lot of it's very violent. And all right, you don't see blood and you don't see gore, but you see violence, you see physical pain, you see all this, you know, Tom and Jerry is, is supremely violent. Uh, Roadrunner is supremely violent. But um, uh, but we don't think of it that way because it's coded in, in, a, in, a, in a quote-unquote child-friendly way. So I think there's an aspect to, to what that's doing with the kind of aesthetics of the gremlins. The gremlins behave like cartoon characters, but they have the capacity to actually threaten and actually scratch and actually bite and actually kill. And that makes what they're doing... I mean, there's something Nightmare on Elm Street-esque about it. That's another quite cartoony horror movie that, that plays with that and, and kind of reveals... The horror within that kind of aesthetic, um, in a nice way, but this is doing it in a, in a you know different context and stuff. I'd yeah, bet. and if we think about this as a Chris Columbus film in Home Alone, there is also a lot of violence in that, but it's more cartoonal because these these things happen to the the wet bandits in that film that would kill a person, but they just kind of bounce back. So that one, it, it, and I think that that film probably is is less controversial because it doesn't have those more tangible effects like that we see in Gremlins. Yeah, yeah, which is which opens a debate we have not got time to to address uh, today. But it's that classic debate with why is it that violence that doesn't have impact is considered to be better. Uh, or more sanctified than than violence than does. If anything, yeah. perhaps it should be the other way around. But um, but hey, another debate, another podcast, another day. Um, Kat, uh, thanks so much for talking about Gremlins. Your book, um, uh, Horror Films for Children, is out, uh, available, uh, and um, please do everyone buy their copy um, as soon as you can. Uh, order it for your libraries if you're an academic. Get it on your course syllabuses, but also buy it for yourselves. It's got a, a wonderful cover. I see Gremlins is the front cover, so that's uh, that's nice to see we're we're, we're on brand. Um, what other? Tell us a little bit about the book more broadly, and what other case studies people can enjoy uh, along with Gremlins if they were to to purchase it. 
well, it's it's basically all about asking and answering the question: What happens to horror when children are the target audience? And more specifically, what happens to children in horror when children are the target audience? And my answer to that, basically, starting with Gremlins, is they get to be a lot more interesting and complicated and agentic than they generally get to be in adult horror films. And as we see in Gremlins, they also get to be really horrific. And I think that that's great and that they should they should be allowed to be horrific. So, um, yeah, Gremlins is one of the major case studies in the book. And as you said, Gizmo's on the cover. Um, I also talk about films like The Monster Squad and I situate that as a post-Gremlins film which takes advantage of the PG-13 rating and in fact it's very similar to Gremlins in that it's also very subversive and representing children doing all kinds of horrific things except this time they're real physical children. Um, I talk about uh, animated films like Paranorman and Coraline um, and I think about the aesthetics of stop motion and how that um, adds to or increases their horrific potential. Um, uh, Monster House is another animated film I talk about, but a CG animated film. Uh, and I believe I cite Chris in that chapter a bit about uh, the virtual kind of animation. Um, and that's in a chapter about that, that is also paired with The Hole, another Joe Dante film, although not an animated one. And I think about the, the space of the home as a source of horror. Um, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's sort of the very rough summary of everything that happens in the book. Um, and, so, and hopefully what the book demonstrates is this is a category of film. It's a really interesting one. Um, it's not impossible, although it's often hanging on an impossibility. And children's horror is great. It's like, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, you sold us. You sold us. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if people do want to buy it, I mean, it's wildly expensive because it's an academic book. But if people do want to buy it, there is a discount code which I don't remember. But I'm on Twitter at uh, Cinefeline, which is spelled C-I-N-E feline as in the cat um and somewhere on there you'll find the code the discount code which will get you about 30 percent off on the bloomsbury website which is the publisher terrific and, it, and if listeners are, are accessing people access these podcasts years down the line so if you're if you're listening in the future um hopefully it'll be available i'm sure on paperback by then and, and that'll make it a little bit cheaper as well if people wanted to to access it so uh, many ways to, to get cats uh, fab new book um i think that's been us for another week hasn't it chris we've done it we've managed to we've managed to yeah. we've managed to articulate gremlins cat thank you so much for helping us through that um it looked like we sort of got it even though we probably should have seen it about 80 times to have had any attempt to qualify to talk about this in public like everybody else and i'm sure people will be watching it <laughs> over the christmas period so um i hope this is wet your whistle to kind of get back in and give it one more rewatch. um so i think all that's left to do is to say thanks so much for coming on the show cat it's been a real pleasure to chat to you Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we are Fantasy Animation. You can find us at fantasy-animation.org as well as on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram uh, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Um, you can access a cat's blog post that we've referenced on this episode in that. Uh, uh, and do we have any more children's horror in the podcast archive, Chris? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. If we haven't, we should, what? and we should do some more. Uh <laughs> 
Why would you, why would you ask me this for the first time? What, what, why would I ask you? Um, corpse Bride. We talk about yeah, Corpse we did Bride. Cor- well done. Thank you, Kat. Thank you. Yes, with Emily Mantel um, from the film. Chris and I don't remember a single thing we do after we press gut finish no. on this. Uh, so, um, thank well, if you. you'd have done loads of children's horror already and yeah. this was the first time you'd invited me on, well, I'd have been true. really offended. This is it. So. You see, we've been saving it for, for when the book came out. So yeah. that's, that's the excuse. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can access other examples in the past um, from things we can't even remember saying but that's been us for another episode and we will see you next time bye